Welcome to the DTB podcast for June 2017, volume 55, number six. My name is David Fizakli. I'm DTB's deputy editor. Hello, I'm James Cave, DTB editor-in-chief. Our editorial this month discusses the use of inhaled corticosteroids and in particular, high-dose inhaled corticosteroids. So James, why have we chosen to look at this? So I think what we're doing in the editorial is um, highlighting a change in direction with inhaled corticosteroids. I think there's been growing concern about the adverse effects with adrenal suppression, osteoporosis, those sorts of things. And there's been a general consensus that the old BTS guidance on asthma tended to see people being stepped up in their dose regime and never being stepped down again. So we discuss the change in tide, if you like, in the use of inhaled corticosteroids, both in asthma and in COPD. So we pick up the the trend in the past of, of managing asthma, gradually increasing people's dose when they don't, don't respond or don't seem to get the benefit they want. Also in COPD, there seemed to have been a move over the years to get higher doses, and yet in both cases, asthma and COPD, evidence of outcome wasn't great? That's right. Uh, and I think the old uh, NICE guidelines on COPD tended to sort of just quietly ensure that patients drifted towards triple therapy with a long-acting beta agonist, uh, a long-acting muscarinic antagonist, and a high-dose inhaled corticosteroids. And yet, as you say, the evidence uh, for high-dose inhaled corticosteroids in both the old step five level of asthma and in COPD was was actually very light. So what we've got is perhaps a move from guideline producers, so the new BTS guideline, and also the gold uh, COPD guidelines, suggesting that there are other things we should be doing and that high-dose inhaled steroids are, are kind of moving away from their previous position? That's right. So uh, the new BTS guidance, for example, has stopped talking about stepping up and talks about treatment options. And and uh, I think uh, we're going to see uh, a general tide, a general switch away from inhaled corticosteroids. Still have an important place to play, but they need to be stepped down um, when appropriate. And is this likely to cause major change in how general practice uses them? I think there's going to have to be a a change in the sense that we've tended in the past, once things are nicely controlled, to try and leave well alone. And I think that we're going to have to be careful looking at patients with COPD and asthma. And if they are well controlled, ask ourselves, should this patient now be coming down off their high um, doses of inhaled corticosteroids to a more moderate level? And certainly discussion to be had around the Kind of risks and benefits of of such treatment and is that something that you think happens to the extent that it should i think at the moment particularly after the uh, publication of asthma deaths i think it was actually in may might be two years ago now looking at the issues around asthma deaths and a lot of the issue there was about poorly controlled patients of course so so i think General practice has been very much looking at poor control and trying to bump up treatments to get people better controlled. And I think we've got to make sure that we are also looking carefully at patients who are well controlled, but perhaps are actually being over treated. OK, thank you very much. 
Uh, our first main article reviews the management of superficial venous thrombosis of the leg. So first question, is it thrombophlebitis or is it superficial <laughs> venous thrombosis? Or yes, does... What is it? I mean, I think the first thing, absolutely, superficial thrombophlebitis, which as a diagnosis GPs have been made, making for decades, is dead. We, we, we shouldn't be calling it anymore because the general consensus is that very often it's not completely superficial, nor is it often a itis at all. It's often no inflammation there. So we shouldn't be using the term superficial thrombophlebitis as, as practitioners. We should be using superficial venous thrombosis. And that suggests or leads us into some of the dilemmas that people face when they see someone with superficial venous thrombosis. And that's, is it going to lead on to something serious? And how do you risk assess for the consequences, which could be DVT or could be PE? And how do you manage that? And is that is that something that we pick up in the article? Yes, I think it's a major thread through our article. We talk about one primary care-based population study from France, for example, that showed that 25% of patients with superficial venous thrombosis, the old-fashioned superficial thrombophobitis, had a DVT, and about 5% of them had a, a pulmonary embolism. So we're increasingly aware that this is not a mild, um, necessarily sort of condition that you can just suggest people rub on a bit of lotion of some sort or ointment. This is something which we have to ask ourselves, could this be a patient at risk? And we discuss the risk factors in the article and some of the uncertainty around that. And the options that, that clinicians face, there's obviously a question about referral. Some people might need to be referred for ultrasound assessment. Yes. And I think the difficulty we've got here is that a lot of the guidelines haven't caught up with the latest evidence. So guidelines differ. And uh, certainly locally, as GPs, you may well find that your guidelines in the area are not the same as uh, somewhere quite near to you. And I think one of the issues for, for primary care is to say, if you see a case of superficial thrombophobitis, you should be asking yourselves, is this person at risk of having more significant uh, condition? And the best thing usually in these situations is to contact your DVT clinic and ask them. And you'll be surprised, I think, or many of us will be surprised how often they'll say, no, we need to see this patient. We need to do an ultrasound. We may well need to actively treat them. And then once you get through the uncertainty of the risk assessment and then who to refer, you've then got the question of what are our treatment options? Um, what are the things we outline? Yes, and this is where, once again, it gets slightly complicated because um, treatments still remain uh, largely symptomatic. Compression, topical non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs are still there. But if you have a, one of these patients who you think are at risk of a venous thromboembolism of some sort, then we're talking about antithrombotic agents. And we talk about uh, the only drug that currently is licensed for the treatment of superficial venous thrombophobitis, which is um, Fonda Paranux, uh, a factor 10 inhibitor. So we review the evidence for that. Other things that people use, obviously low molecular weight heparins, but the evidence not so good. No, surprisingly, how little evidence there is for low molecular weight heparin and the other oral anticoagulant drugs. Um, we have one non-inferiority trial of rivaroxaban at the moment. But again, not licensed and obviously early days for, for that. But obviously you can see a direction of travel that uh, they may become um, part of, of treatment in the future. Well, exactly. I mean, it, it seems sort of slightly uh, counterintuitive at the moment that the only drug 
we have license for the management of superficial venous thrombosis is actually more invasive in many respects for patients uh, being a subcut injection than the oral anticoagulants that they would use if they'd actually have a, a deep vein thrombosis. So overall, still lots of questions unanswered, but a direction of travel seems to suggest we should be taking this more seriously than we have in the past. Absolutely. I think this is a sort of a, a, a really interesting area that is sort of therapeutics on the move. So watch this space. OK, thank you very much. And our final article this month explores the use of carbohydrate deficient transferrin, CDT, as a biomarker for assessing chronic alcohol use. Why did we choose this one? So this is very interesting. Um, we picked this up because we've become aware that the Driver and Vehicle Licensing Agency, the DVLA, are now using this test to assess patients who may have lost their license through persistent alcohol misuse or alcohol dependence. And so we felt it probably quite important to uh, highlight its strengths, its weaknesses and uh, some background to it. And, and a quick, what is it? What is CDT? Yes, yeah, so it's very interesting. So basically, uh, transferrin has uh, a number of carbohydrate chains. And if you drink alcohol, you lose these chains on your transferrin. And that the number of chains you have attached to your transferrin molecule in your bloodstream pretty accurately judges how much you've drunk in the way of alcohol over the last two to five weeks. So whilst we have the audit um, questionnaire, which is considered sort of the gold standard in primary care, it's based purely on a patient reported levels of drinking. So traditionally as GPs, we've, we've used that, but we've also resorted to things like the gamma GT blood test, but that's not specific for alcohol. Whereas the great thing about carbohydrate deficient transferrin is it's as sensitive as gamma glutamyl transferase, but it's more specific as well. So overall, it, it's a more reliable assessment of somebody's recent drinking behaviour as opposed to anything else that we currently use. Yes, I mean, there are situations when it is less accurate and we detail those in the article. But I think given that we're talking about in 2014, five and a half thousand drink drive accidents with over 8,000 casualties, you know, 21% of deaths of drivers are over the legal limit. So this is uh, an important issue, and I think it's important that our readers understand how carbohydrate deficiency transferring works. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, to read these and any of our articles, please visit our website at dtb.bmj.com. And if you have any comments or suggestions for DTB, please email dtbeditor at bmj.com. Thank you very much. Thank you.